Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. One of the things that has been at the front of the discussion in the city for months now, I guess. I mean, more than months, but really since September, when the guy who runs finance in the city, Mike Zagarek, came forward and told the council and the city that we were looking at the potential of a 14.2% tax increase, which caused a series of, I think, eyebrows to shoot upwards and maybe even some aneurysms. Um, th- that has been one of the chief items of discussion in the city. How are we going to deal? How is council going to deal with 14.2%? Well, we're getting closer to an answer on that one. And the city is now saying it would like you to participate in consultation on what you think about the budget. What would you like to see with the budget? We bring in Vito Scro. He is a former mayoral candidate. Uh, he is a former liberal candidate for provincial office, a uh, commentator on political things in the city. Vito, how are you? Very well. How are you uh, this afternoon, Scott? Excellent. Cannot be better. I'm I'm fascinated to see a couple things about this. Um, the big one, though, is I, I don't know how many people are going to come forward to be part of this public consultation. And I'm going to be really interested to see how many people come forward with new pitches as opposed to simply to say, let's get this money down. I don't know which way this is going to go. Well, I'm not holding out high hopes that there's going to be a meaningful dialogue between the citizens and council. I mean, you've, you've been given till tomorrow um, to, to, to sign up online, and I think you got till Monday in person, and you've seen what happens. I've been to City, City Hall when they've had these consultations, so-called consultations. People come up, they get three to five minutes, they're rushed along. If some of the councillors don't agree with what's been said, they just fold their hands and don't say a word. Whereas if the councillor agrees with whoever's speaking, they'll they'll ask questions to keep it going for 15, 20 minutes. It's just an exercise of futility, if you ask me. They're not really going to listen. What is confusing about this, though, is the budget, the the 14.2% we know about, but we don't yet have, the councillors don't yet have the budget book, we don't know what the budget actually says. How do you consult and give your feedback as a member of the public if nobody knows what the actual number is right now? You don't. This is just lip service. That's all this is. There's a, a box that'll be ticked saying, yes, we've had consultations. People had the right to have their say, but you're right. If you don't know what you're discussing, what are you going to talk about? Um, I'm, I'm getting really worried. Toronto is close to 10% and that's not the over, the, over. Yeah. So it's over 10% and that's a done deal. We could be looking at close to 14 and, and I'm, I am terrified that that's going to happen. If that happens, there'll be a revolt. There'll be a complete revolt. You're going to see a lot of things happen at city hall that are not going to be nice in terms of, you know, politicians threatened in the next election, you know, threatened being thrown out of office. I mean, and, and I, I, people are going to get very, very angry and I don't blame them. There is no transparency here. There's agendas of certain people. Um, they, they complain about money, but then they throw their little programs in at, at millions of dollars. They, they've got to take a step back listen to what staff uh, suggests is going to happen in terms of money and then discuss it. And then you make your decision. I think it's already a done deal. If you ask me in terms of a lot of their minds, unless people get really, really angry and the anger is starting, Scott. The anger may be starting. And believe me, I mean, when I wrote uh, in the paper and talked about it on the show here about that 14.2% back in September, I heard from a ton of people 
But I'm not positive, Vito, that those are the people who are going to get up in front of council and speak their mind. I, I, I could be very wrong on that. I could be very surprised when on the 16th when this happens. I see them more as the quiet ones in the background who are just steaming under their breath. Oh, I don't think it's going to happen in front of council. First of all, there's just not enough time for enough people to really have their say. You're going to be pushed along. I, When the the, the, the HATS uh, proposal uh, was trying to go through at city council, I was there that day. People got up there, eloquently spoke about, you know, what, what their concerns were. And they were rushed along and they went, thank you know, council went, thank you and moved on to the next one. The anger is going to come from the people who are not there, and they are organizing. There are meetings going on. There's one tonight uh, in terms of a, a potential tax coming up. People are organizing, and I think council is going to be in for a rude awakening of what's happening in the next few months. Vito, you mentioned Toronto and the, I think it's 10.5, unless that changes, but it's 10.5% tax increase. Do you think that that gives Hamilton an out? Do you think you're going to hear in council when the budget is discussed, not at the deliberate, not at the public consultation in the budget con deliberations, do you think we will hear some councillors say, Hey, look, Toronto is 10.5. So ours is not that bad. Is this an excuse or a, a, a redirection for council? Well, it'll be a justification in certain councillors' eyes that, that they, you know, it's cover for them, but to the public, no, I'm sorry. Toronto, it's been known for years that their, their property taxes are artificially low and they're now paying the piper. I mean, you can't make that argument in Hamilton. Now, if you if you feel that there are, you know, there is pressure in Hamilton, I asked the councillors, then why did you hire 400 new people at potentially 30, 40 million dollars? Why did you expand and accelerate the bike lane program at 60 million dollars? Why did you spend 750,000 dollars on e-bikes? Like, why did you make all these purchases that, I'm sorry, they're not important enough right now when you have people living on the streets, when you have housing units empty that the city owns and people are intense on sidewalks, their priorities are all wrong. This is not a social uh, uh, laboratory. We're a city. We need roads done, parks done, sewers done, uh, public health done, things like that. That's what they should be thinking about. 14%, uh, everyone thought, oh, 14%, that's what they're going to start at. They'll lower it. I'm starting to think they're going to try, it'll probably come in close to 14%, and then they're going to have a severe problem on their hands. Uh, by the way, Jan uh, January 15 um, is the uh, is the date. Yeah. Um, okay, so the 14%, though, we heard a month or so ago, maybe more, the suggestion from the mayor or elsewhere that reserves could be tapped. This may be that rain at the quote was something about, you know, the reserves are for a rainy day and this is that rainy day. Are reserves the solution? If, if, no. if the mayor or council taps into 50 or $60 million in reserves and brings it from 14 down to nine, is that the solution? Well, first of all, reserves are future taxes. That's that's the that's what they've got to realize. Reserves are also kept um, to, for for it helps the bond rating agencies uh, grade a city on how much interest they'll pay on their debt. So the reserves and I only saw 2021, I believe 2022. I didn't see the, the 2023 yet. Their reserves are about 750 million dollars. 400 million are development or future development. These are some of the developers who kick in amounts that have to go for new sewers and water. They've canceled a lot of the um, uh, potential housing up in Elf Friday, which I understand. Those people have paid into it. They're going to want their money back. 
So you lower reserves, you're going to be paying more in interest. Now, six, seven, eight years ago, when you're paying 0.8% interest, it's not as bad. You're not paying that now. You're paying three, four, five percent. That could add tens of millions of dollars to the city's operating cost. You're not winning. It makes you look a little bit good for a few months, and that's it. Well, and there is the risk, of course. There is the risk that, uh, you know, the mayor is correct that reserves are for a rainy day, and there is the risk that there could be another rainy day and the reserves are depleted. So, yes, you could you can point to this as a rainy day, and I, I believe I agree with the way the tax increase is shaping up that it is a rainy day, but it may not be the only rainy day. Well, there's a monsoon coming. And and again, these reserves are not just, I can take them to do whatever I want with them. These reserves uh, are, are set for specific items like roads, sewers, things like that. You can't just take $50 million out and put it to your operating for other programs. It's 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 a, a strict code of accounting rules that you, you have to follow. And if you don't follow that and you, you get you get put on a watch, which by the way, Burlington has been put on a watch, that just increases your costs. And, and when interest goes from 0.8% to four or 5%, and you've got a $700 million debt or an $800 million debt, you're looking at another 20, 30, $40 million a year. It, we're, we're talking real serious numbers that we can't sustain going forward. So they're gonna have to sharpen their pencils or whatever, your computers or whatever you use these days and really start making some serious decisions. You can't hire 300 people. You can't open up an environmental office at two and a half million dollars, which should have been done by existing staff in the first place. You can't have your little pet projects when serious things are going without now, like roads, sewers, water, park, water, water. That's another 10, 15% increase right there. That's not included on that 14%. Mm. One of the things that I guarantee we're going to hear, because we've already heard it many, many times, is this is not our fault. This is the downloading from the province. This is stuff that we have no control over. I know we're going to hear it again, because we've heard a lot of it. Is that a an argument that will have traction for council or do people not care? And they just say, just keep my taxes down. Scott, it's your fault. It's my fault. It's everybody else's fault, but the levels of government. I, I mean, we don't do the spending. We watch our household. We try to save. We try to cut wherever we have to. Provinces, uh, federal governments give uh, money to provinces and sometimes directly to cities. Provinces do the same thing to the cities. What did you do with the money that you got? I, I'd love to know on the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that cities get, Hamilton gets, what did you do with that money? I would love to go line by line and say, why did you spend it there? You knew this was coming and you still did that? You redid uh, Victoria Street for bike lanes, raised bike lanes, but the road underneath is falling apart. Why did you do that? And now you're, you're screaming that it's the province's fault or the federal government's fault. You got excise tax money. You got everything. Where is that money going? It is going to be an interesting one. As I say, the... Um... Let me clarify one more time because I've been throwing dates around here and I probably confused everybody. The date to get a video submission in if you want to be giving a consultation with the council is tomorrow. Monday is the date to put your name on and January 16, so Tuesday is the latest delegation day, which is when people will have a chance to speak. Hopefully hopefully I haven't completely confused everyone, but uh, that is that is Vito Scro. Uh, always appreciate you coming on and talking about this, Vito. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott.
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. About a month ago, after weeks and weeks and weeks of conservative increases in their gap over the Liberals federally, Pierre Polyev over Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, um, about a month ago, there was a poll that came out that said, oh, you know what, that's starting to slip that the the conservatives had peaked and now here come the liberals a little bit and people are beginning to look at Pierre Polyev because he's getting so much attention and maybe they don't like what they see and the number, the gap is closing again. Well, there have been some new polls that have come out and let's just say that if you were someone who was supporting the liberals, hoping that was true, you're probably not going to like these polls very much because what they are saying is if those were accurate, things have turned back the way they were. If they weren't accurate, then, you know, we're just where we were. But the Conservatives are back to, according to these polls, a 17-point lead over the Liberals nationally. Which is, to me, a very, very puzzling thing. And I want to bring in my next guest to talk about this because for the last eight years that the Trudeau Liberals have been in power, it has seemed as though almost everything they have touched has gone their way. And even the scandals, people have overlooked them. But many of the decisions they've made have been popular, have bolstered their popularity across this country. It seems in recent weeks and months, nothing they do is working for them. Kate Harrison is a vice chair at Summit Strategies. Joins us now. Kate, how are you? I'm well, Scott. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I appreciate you coming on and doing this because this to me is so, I don't know if people just get fatigued with people or what's Mm -hmm. happening, but it seems as though where the liberals once upon a time were Midas and everything they touched turned to gold, now they're Medusa. And if they just look at you, things go horribly wrong. (laughs) Yeah, sunny ways no more. No. Uh, star- uh, stormy days ahead. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think fatigue is part of this, Scott, for sure. We we see similar trend lines, um, you know, thinking back even to the decline of the Harper government. Uh, at some point, and, and Canadians are pretty reliable in their 8- to 10-year cycle on, on governments. They usually give you two terms to figure it out, and after that, uh, they, they switch gears. Um, and we're at that point in the, the Trudeau Liberals uh, cycle. But I think there's a few things that are a bit different. Um, Trudeau has really enveloped uh, the Liberal Party brand. Uh, he is so closely associated and affiliated with all things Liberal that um, when before, when anything they did that was great, he got credit for anything that they're doing now that is a negative, of course, he's taking the blame for. So because he has deliberately made that connection so close, the liberals are in this really horrible spiral where nothing they do, including, you know, some actions from their cabinet ministers on things like housing and and finance and affordability measures, none of that is really resonating because people are kind of over Justin Trudeau. So there's a couple of big choices that they have to make. Do they, does Trudeau stay on? And, you know, the suggestion at the year-end interviews is that he he was going to do that. Uh, There's still, you know, rumors in Ottawa where I am that maybe he is going to take that long walk in the snow. But when you are so closely tied to the brand, it's really hard for anybody else kind of under you to succeed. And that has made getting any message out from the Liberal government super, super challenging. And even on files like housing, where they're attempting to be much more proactive than they had been, 
nothing is resonating because people think Trudeau and the government are out of gas and out of fresh ideas. If he does leave though, and there's no evidence and no hint that he is going to, but if he did, does that then help them or does that hurt them? Because you're right, he is so closely aligned with this party now that I don't know... I mean, maybe if he goes, you take away the bad part of it that might, that people think about him. But if he leaves, who takes over and are they going to get any more traction with the public? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's always a bit of crystal balling to know whether or not, you know, doing that is going to help or to hurt. I I think of instances in Ontario, you know, Dalton McGinty deciding and realizing perhaps that he wasn't going to win another term, deciding to cut early giving Kathleen Wynne the opportunity to come uh, and build the party kind of under her own brand and banner. And that proved to be a success. Now, um, that also had a fair bit to do with an opposition that, that I think, you know, unfortunately fumbled the ball in that, uh, in that election. But it can work. I guess the question is for the federal liberals, um, they ran the last three elections with Justin Trudeau. There's a huge amount of loyalty there, and there's no heir apparent. We don't know, uh, you know, Christian Freeland's name gets uh, tossed around. That hasn't really happened as much in the last year. The suggestion is maybe she doesn't want that job. She wants something abroad or some other opportunity. So there's no heir apparent. There's a huge amount of loyalty to Trudeau because he pulled them from, you know, kind of the depths of despair in 2015 to power. Uh, and without anybody forcing his hand and and because i think there is a fair bit of ego at play with this prime minister uh why move why not wait for things to get a little bit better with the economy wait to see the tire fire in the united states election play out and attempt to link the poly of conservatives to the trump republicans uh time is not necessarily a bad thing for this government or for justin trudeau well, no, and, and there's another uh, sort of pivot point, because you could say on the one hand, well, yeah, time, look, our, the poll numbers are not great right now. They're not idiots. They see that. So we're going to wait this out and hope things turn around. The flip side is, though, that we, we keep hearing that, you know, the economy is not great. If this gets worse, if people get angrier, you end up potentially, I would think, in a Kim Campbell situation where your, your caucus meeting is, you know, you and two friends in a booth at a McDonald's. Yeah, well, and keep in mind, the, the Liberals don't have the same uh, ability to turp their leader like the Conservatives did with Aaron O'Toole during the, the convoy mess and post-2021. So there's not really the opportunity, if you will, for caucus to turn in that way. And I, I do struggle to see where there is more room for growth on the Conservative side. Like the NDP have been holding pretty steady um, so any of the, the gains that the Conservatives are making are really on the backs of, of the Liberals. It's not so much at the NDP. So I, I'm not sure that the, the situation is so dire at this point that it has really forced a, a serious um, a serious rethinking on the part of the Prime Minister. Keep in mind, he has entered the last two elections as the underdog. Uh, and he True. has pulled out electoral victories with both. So he's not somebody to be underestimated on the campaign trail. But I think that what caucus needs to see and what a lot of the base needs to see is a little more uh, energy behind the ideas. Like we've been missing this North Star for the prime minister for some time. We don't really know why he's still doing this beyond just having the job and wanting to hold on to it. So I think if he's going to keep uh, his, his caucus happy, keep his base happy, which is still, you know, a, a sizable chunk of the population, about 30 percent of the population or high 20s then he needs to convey to them that he's got 
a real uh, zest for this job and that he wants to keep doing that and that it's not out of gas. You mentioned about where could the Conservatives find more gains. And the only thing that came to mind when you said that is the Conservatives, the, the Liberals were almost poll-wise, not numeric-wise with seats, but they were almost being wiped out in Atlantic Canada until they made that announcement of the carbon tax thing for heating oil, which basically benefits Atlantic Canada and no yeah. other region. And so Atlantic Canada has now, if you look at the polls, bounced back where they are supporting equal or more liberals than anyone else. So it's bounced back. And yet his poll numbers show the same as they were before this. So it means elsewhere in the country, more people must have turned towards Pierre Polyev and left him. Yeah. And, and I think they didn't get the payoff that they were expecting in Atlantic Canada. Like it took a while for that reversal to happen. And I still think that there are big parts of Atlantic Canada that are just not coming back. Like a huge amount of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are absolutely in play for for the Conservatives. Newfoundland is maybe a little bit of a tougher nut to crack. But uh, for for sure, those, especially in Western Canada, um, the it, it's palpable the desire to change leaders and, and get rid of Trudeau. So, But that doesn't help the Conservatives in terms of growing forming a government or getting a majority government, right? You could have 100% of people uh, in Saskatchewan and Alberta vote to get rid of the Trudeau Liberals, and that still doesn't get you a majority government. So, uh, And that's actually about true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Conservatives need to be uh, a little bit more strategic, of course, in where they're placing their efforts. And that's where, you know, these really uh, interesting contests in Atlantic Canada, parts of Quebec, of course, the 905, where you are in Hamilton, that becomes so valuable for them in terms of trying to convert those voters, including NDP voters, uh, over to the blue team. So there's there's still a lot of work to be done in that regard. We only have a few seconds left, but you're I mean you're a strategist. So let's let's look at this for a second. The number one method in an election year, or as you're getting up to an election year, to win people over every single party doesn't matter the stripe, is give people stuff, spend money mm-hmm. to buy their votes. Essentially, if we want to be really cynical. But we are in a time now with the economy and so much debt and so much deficit and the the interest rates and everything else. I don't know that the Trudeau liberals can do that again anytime soon and splash billions and billions of dollars without causing havoc. So what do they do? Well, just to to your last point, I don't think they care too much about the havoc they cause because that's going to be the next government's problem to deal with. The question I think is, where do they choose to spend? Because that is going to be an indicative of where they think they can form the next government. I think the big monetary question that's going to uh, the, the the government has to handle is pharmacare. The NDP are looking for a huge amount of money in order to uh, keep that coalition alive and and see that promise through. Um, that could be, I think, the next big expenditure that would have a consumer impact, a voter impact that they have to consider. But we are talking about billions and billions of dollars at a time when you're right, Scott, we really can't afford it. But I don't think the Liberals think too much into the future about what Canadians can and can't afford as long as it gets them reelected. Uh, I, 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 you know what, regardless of the party, I sincerely hope that they're not that cynical, but uh, I guess, you know, we, we shall see. Uh, Kate Harrison, Vice Chair of Summer Strategies. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, at the beginning of the show, I was kind of chuckling to myself and to you about the poor, unfortunate Miami Dolphins, the football team, because they played a game last Saturday, uh, last Sunday night, and 
had they won that game against the Buffalo Bills, they would have had a home playoff game this weekend in lovely Miami, where it's supposed to be somewhere around 75 degrees, in front of their own crowd. Well, they didn't win. And the result of not winning means they now have to go to Kansas City to play in Kansas City. But it's not even about playing on the road. It's the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs and the Kansas City area are expecting by this weekend to have an absolutely vicious cold snap Arctic freeze come across that region of the Midwest. Expectations are this will be one of the coldest games in the history of the NFL. The last prognostication had it at temperatures were going to dip down to minus 30 degrees by game time. That's horrendous. Let me bring in Steve Foxcroft. He is a guy who knows well about temperatures because in addition to talking about sports and refereeing sports, he is one of the guys who holds the sticks, the yardsticks at Buffalo Bills games. If there's somebody who knows about suffering through weather and temperatures, it is him. Sir, how are you? I am. I was great up until you reminded me of about one game a year over the last 30 years. And you know what, Scott? I've already plugged in my heated electric vest for this Sunday afternoon. And we're not even going to be like Kansas City. It's, it's going to be chilly in Buffalo. It's going to be, I mean, that's not fair. It's going to be cold in Buffalo, but not like that. No. We've had... The, w- the way they're describing it, and you, like you said, like coldest game on record. I remember back, I believe the coldest one was in Cincinnati back in the icky shuffle days. And we've had one close. A couple of years ago, we had New England in for a playoff game, and it was a night game. And it was the coldest it's ever been. And now, for the listeners, too, snowing, when it's snowing, it doesn't mean it's cold. When the temperature gets so low, it won't snow. So when it's snowing, it's actually a good thing because the temperature is right around freezing. But when it gets dipped down into these temperatures that we're talking about, it won't snow. It's too cold for snow. And it's just a bitter cold. And basically for me, it's about your hands. Like, oh, yeah. Of course, your feet, your feet are next, but you're, you can kind of – if you can kind of get those foot warmers in, and if you're moving around, your feet can be okay. The, the key there is don't tie your boots or shoes up too tight. You have to have a little bit of airflow in there. What but do you do? But, Steve, do you have, um, do you guys, as part of the refereeing crew, do you share a room with the on-field officials? We're right beside each other, so we're out. We're just a door apart. Okay, so when you go into that room at halftime in one of those games when it's so cold, you guys are the officials. Like, is everyone stripping down and pressing their body against a heater just to try and thaw out, or are you bundling up in there to try and thaw out? Usually they're bundling up more because the, the thing is, it's only like a 12-minute halftime. Like, halftime, when you're watching the game at home, halftime seems to take forever. When you're at the stadium and have to run off the field, get to your locker room, and then allow a few minutes to get back out on the field, it is a quick turnaround. So usually, and the second half is always much colder than the first half Hmm. because whether it's a 1 o'clock game, night game, or whatever, it's just later in the day, no matter what the uh, conditions. 
and it's always colder in the second half. So we talk through with the ref, the game officials, especially the ones from out of town and out of climate, they have a tough time. They just don't want to be there, and they, they have difficulty. And for the rest of us, it's more about just knowing the second half, maybe put on that extra layer to help get us through. Well, thank goodness for the invention of the Fox 40 whistle, huh? <laughs> you <got it. laughs> well, yeah, you got it. Um, they so, love that. It doesn't freeze. <laughs> you know what? At, in those temperatures, I'm not betting that even the Fox 40 won't freeze. It may not freeze. The pee may not freeze inside, but your lips are going to freeze to the whistle. It's going to be like the kid with his tongue in Christmas story on the pole. You know what? That's exactly what it could be. Some and poor it, ref is going to have to have warm water poured on his lips to extract yeah. the whistle at the end of the half. A little bit at a time. Just do a little bit at a time. There's, you there's, might not hear whistles from Kansas City or Buffalo this week. See, there's the next idea for the Fox 40 Corporation, is warmed whistles, heated warmed whistles. whistles. You know what we did do, getting back to pandemic days, and we've kind of already solved it, the electronic whistle yeah, is yeah. what a lot of sports went to uh, throughout the pandemic, those professional sports. Some went to that. Of course, we did the whistle mask to cover, you know, over top yep, of the whistle yep. and to keep everything in. We did that, which might help a little bit in this instance. There's nothing. Then the mask would probably freeze to the face. Yeah, there's nothing. There, There is, I, I can guarantee, and I don't, you know, I don't talk to them, but I can guarantee that any official that got called by the NFL this week to say, hey, we're assigning your games, you get Kansas City. They're all like, what did I do wrong? Who did exactly. I tick off? I don't want, anyway. All right, so you the know, fact, though, so go ahead. You talked about Miami if they had won. The interesting thing, and you said in front of their fans again, but it likely would have been Buffalo going back to Miami. Yeah. So it might have been a 50-50 crowd yet again yeah, if but they I, had gone back. Uh, if I'm a player on that team, and especially if I am a quarterback who grew up in Hawaii, I don't care if I am playing the 1985 Chicago Bears mixed with the best of the New England Patriots and Vince Lombardi's team. I don't care. I just want to not have my fingers fall off in the cold. That's right. And you heard the record, right? He's, what, 11-1 and one in games under 45 degrees, 49 degrees? Like, 45 degrees is nothing, and I'm using Fahrenheit here because that's yes, what it, yes. American. But, you know, 45 degrees is not, that's a bombing day for us. We just go out and think about golf. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so here's the big question, though. Is the NFL, with one exception that I can think of, a few years ago they held a, a Super Bowl game in New York, but that's the only game that I, only championship game that I can think of that was played with the possibility the likely possibility of really inclement weather. I mean, they've had rain and stuff at Super Bowls, but they always put it either in a dome or in a warm climate because they want the game to be played under ideal situations. But for you, leaving aside the fact that you may need to have someone scrape you off the turf because you froze into the field, leaving that part aside, do you prefer football in elements? Do you prefer to have a game, the fog bowl, the mud bowl, the snow bowl, the ice bowl, or do you prefer, no, let's put this in a place where they players can be at their absolute best. So I, I kind of flip flopped on this in recent years because I was always about the elements and I was always looking at it from a Buffalo Bills perspective where opposing teams would come in and it was a huge advantage for the Buffalo Bills. And they would, they would just whip the other team. But now in the later years, in the last couple of years, 
And maybe it's because I'm getting old and I'm a softie right now and I got to toughen up. <laughs> but in later years, I kind of look at the Bills and think, like last year in the Elements, they had a terrible game against Cincinnati. Cincinnati came in, which is another cold climate team, but they came in and they manhandled the Bills. It wasn't even close. So, And they were likely the better team all along, and we found that out. However, it was clearly not an advantage for the Bills to play at home, where you know they go into a dome, and I think they're a better team. So maybe I don't know if that's just because that's the team we are now, but I have flip-flopped, so I'm like... 30 years one way, two years the other. Yeah, I um, I see, I love the, I love the weather stuff. I love to, uh, we all know that athletes today are outstanding. They're, you know, they train for everything. They train for, I mean, their, their nutrition, their training, their coaching, everything is perfect. And the one thing that I don't think you can control if you're an athlete is what environment you have to necessarily play in. It's the one thing that can throw a complete monkey wrench into all your plans. And that, that's why I love, you know, you've got a team that's great at passing, but all of a sudden now it's pouring rain to the point where you can barely, let's see what you can do. Or, or I just, I love the unknown of throwing a wrinkle into the plan. I, and that's why I say 30 years, I was, I was exactly that. And I'm kind of, 50-50 now on whether I've even flipped, even though the last two years I'd kind of say, boy, the Bills are a better team indoors. They're fast. But it only applies to a few teams. like Because rain is the same for both teams. But like Green Bay, I think in December, January, definite home field advantage. Buffalo the same. And Kansas City the same, but almost more so for the crowd noise than anything else. Because it's been the recorded as the loudest stadium. Yeah. And it is tough to play in crowd noise. I've seen that firsthand too. I, so. I, I will say though, Steve, that, you know, crowds, kudos to anybody who's in Kansas City at that game. And they'll be full, but I, mm-hmm. and maybe, again, maybe I, it's just because you and I are both getting old now, but I, I, I can't think of anything I would less want to do. I would rather, I think, have like a root canal with a chainsaw than to sit outside in those kind of temperatures for three hours for a football game when I have the option to do it from my couch. The, I, I, and I 100% agree with you. And I think it's what, what you just said and what I said earlier. I think even you and I now, we got to check our birth certificates because we may have passed it. We may have softened up. You know, we may be little sucks. Well, yeah, and, and I'll tell you the last time, the la- now you've, you've done it much more recent than I have, and you were just explaining it. The last time that I had to do a really, really cold football game, like really cold working, it was for the 2014 Vanier Cup in Montreal. McMaster was playing against Montreal at Molson Stadium, and they had, for whatever reason, there were no heaters in the press box, and I don't want to be all sucky. But there were also at the back of the press box, two doors, one at each end. And every time somebody opened the door, either of them, and it seemed like they were doing it every five seconds for some reason, this blast of Arctic air would come in. And I was so cold, I could barely type. And worse, it was so cold in there that I had to turn my head because if I looked at my computer, the screen fogged up every time I took a breath. <laughs> so it's like, I don't need this. I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm old now and soft and, you know, <laughs> I'll watch those guys go out in Kansas City with no sleeves on and play oh, yeah. in short sleeves. And, um, yeah, that's. There, my example of what I said is 
how I'm old and soft is I have the electric vest. Yeah. <laughs> but you I are the But you are the host of the Burlington Santa Claus parade and that means you're effervescent as <laughs> has been described. So, you know, that's uh, you anyone who's effervescent gets a heated vest. That comes with exactly. the, the Another another time when the heated vest usually is broken out. For the Burlington Santa Claus. There you go. Uh, okay, so very quickly, the other news, football news, which I found, well, everyone has found this interesting today, is all of a sudden, in the span of two days, we have two of the, and maybe the two most decorated coaches in football history, one in college, one in pros, out of a job. Nick Saban retires as coach of Alabama, seven national championships, Bill Belichick. Um, they say they went their separate ways. Uh, He was fired or shown the door gently, uh, six Super Bowl championships. So here's your question. The two, as I say, in each league, the two most successful guys, who is the coach who had the bigger impact of those two? Great question. Very great question. And I'm going to lean towards Nick Saban. Now, the Nick Saban one kind of caught me off guard, too. The Belichick one didn't because there's been talk about it all year, even going back to last year. The Nick Saban one, I never heard any talk about him, like, doing it immediately, like maybe a year or two down the road. But So I'm going to lean towards Nick Saban, and, I will, and I'll, I'll preface it this way. Because Nick Saban recycled quarterbacks mostly all the time, He had to recruit. He got great linemen. He got great players at every position. But he had to recruit, and he had to recycle. And in the pros, you do that. You do recycle. But Bill Belichick had Tom Brady for, what, 20 years or whatever it was? Like, he had him forever. So I'm going to lean towards Nick Saban for that reason of he had to coach more, I think, and he had to add the recruiting aspect into it. Right. And, and, and when you say recycle, I mean, the guys can only stay at university for so many years. So by definition, you have to find new players all the time and then train them to be star players. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a valid point for sure. Exactly. And, and a lot of them at that level, because you're so good, you don't last four years at school. You last one, two, three years, maybe. Like, you know, his greatest players never lasted four years at Alabama. So he had to go out and get new ones. And like you said, coach them up to be great. Where for a while there, like, like Belichick had Tom Brady at the most key important position, and he attracted some of these free agents too. So I'm going to lean towards Nick Saban to answer the question. See, I would go the other way, and the only reason I would say Belichick, and not because of personality, both of these guys are surly. I mean, I, I don't know that I want to sit down and have a, a beer with either of these two guys. I mean, they're both, they both seem like they just are... Anyway, um, but the reality is in a salary cap league to be able to stay on top and win as much as he did, that to me is remarkable because you look in any other league that has a salary cap, there just are not, there are dynasties who may be on top for three or four or five years, not winning every year, but, but not 20. And I mean, it's amazing what he was able to do for as long as he was able to do it. And do you think though, like Tom Brady took less? Some of those guys that were at the end of their career ended up landing there as like Junior Seau, Randy Moss. Like there were so many examples of guys who came for a year or two with them and probably took a haircut to do it. They wanted a championship. Yeah, 
they wanted to win, right? And 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 they usually did. They usually did. So I give Belichick credit for that. I was thinking today, I've been doing this a long time. I had 25 games, road games, where I worked alongside, like up and down the sidelines with Bill Belichick as the head coach. Yeah. Like 24 the- years he came to Buffalo plus a playoff game. So you guys are buddies. You, so you guys are buddies. He's on a first name basis. Oh, he definitely. sees you and goes, "Hey, oh, yeah. Steve, he nice to see you." Real close. You got a bro hug and you're ready to go. <laughs> a little, a little fist bump. A little fist hey, bump. Good to see you again. I, I will say this now: anyone who has watched the um, the show, speaking of you being on the sidelines, the show that that quarterback show on Netflix with. Um, uh, Marcus Mariota yeah. and uh, Kirk Cousins and what's his name? I can't even. How can I not think um, of the um, Kirk Cousins and Mahomes? Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes. Yeah. So I'm watching this. I'm way behind everybody else, but I'm watching this the other day, and all of a sudden there's a game involving one of them. I can't remember which one. I think it was Kirk Cousins with Minnesota in Buffalo, and geez, Louise, if that isn't Steve Foxcroft's face on my TV screen, even on you're a star, even on Netflix now. I, I added that to the CV right away, right <laughs> on my resume. Like, actor in Netflix. It. Yes, Netflix yeah, actor. So there Maria, you go. My my better half is sitting beside me rolling her eyes right now because she's going, oh, my gosh, don't bring this up again. He's only sent that picture to a million people. Oh, is that right? <laughs> All right, oh, well. Yeah. Well, I had it sent to me because – uh, it blew up my phone because, like you, I hadn't watched it, so I didn't know. So for about a week, I was getting text messages with people sending it to me, going, "You're on that? Like, what's what's going on?" So I had no idea either, and and like you, I found out that way. Just Did by you accident. have you written to Netflix yet, asking and demanding residuals? Oh, I've uh, yeah, I got a guy on that right away. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, we got to run, but amazing story. I don't know if you know the story. We're talking about uh, Nick Saban. Amazing story about Nick Saban that I did not know until yesterday. I heard this and I looked it up and apparently it's true. Nick Saban was, uh, he went to Kent State University and he was on campus and was going to go to the rally on May 4, 1970, when the people were shot, the students were shot and killed on Kent State University, but he and his future wife decided to go grab some food instead. And so they wow. could, he could have been yeah. either there or shot. I mean, who yeah. knows? But um, yeah. amazing how one little decision to go get a burrito changes yeah. the course of uh, football history. That is an amazing, and I hadn't heard that either. So that's a good one. Let me just, I know you got to run, but I tell you this one too. Got to give a shout out, shout out to our local guy, Nathan Rourke. Yes. Went to went to New England. He's the answer to the trivia question. Only player this year to play two road games, both against the Bills, but only one of them in Buffalo. And when I was I on never the sideline the other day, minding my own business, Nathan ran over to say hello and give a big hug. And, you know, unlike Belichick, he gave me a hug and said hi. Yeah, and Nathan Rourke from uh, Oakville uh, slash Burlington and yeah. went to play for the BC Lions and is now yeah. uh, down in the States. Well, you know why he did that? Because even he knows 
that when you see Steve, you know who Mr. Effervescent is. And so you got to go over and say hello because there's yeah. there's not enough effervescence to go around. So I think he might be on the next quarterback show. We might get on the Netflix again. Yeah, well, I um and I don't know I don't know how effervescence works when it's below freezing, but we will see how the <laughs> bubbles go uh, this weekend. Look for Steve on the sidelines at the Bills game. Always appreciate you doing this. Thanks. Great catching up. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.